When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm glad to be back with you. There's just a couple of housekeeping items I need to take care of before we dive back into the Doctrine and Covenants for today. First, several of you have asked about notifications on YouTube. I am not a YouTube expert, unfortunately. My kids always make fun of me. They're like, my dad's a YouTuber. I'm like, no, I'm not a YouTuber. I'm a teacher. And I just happen to be stuck with YouTube to extend the walls of my classroom. But I don't know a whole lot about the, the technology behind it all. But I, as far as I understand, there's a little bell next to the subscribe button. Uh, that if you click on that, it'll allow you to set some notifications so that you don't miss anything. So look for the bell next to the subscribe or somewhere around there. The second thing has to do with the poem that I shared at the end of last week's lesson, The Savior Song. Several of you asked for that, and so I included a link in the video description from last week where you can download a copy. And the third thing is super minor. I'm probably the only one that noticed it last week. But as I was video editing after filming, I realized that my, my sleeves were not rolled up as they typically are. Again, small thing. But for me, there's something about rolling up the sleeves that makes me feel like I'm getting to work. And scripture study is meant to be work. It is work and glory, right? It is part of bringing to pass our immortality and eternal life. So it is work and glory. And if we provide the work, the Lord provides the glory. And so to me, there's just something mental that when I roll up my sleeves and open up my scriptures, I'm ready to do the work with the word. It's similar to the fact that I usually don't have my shoes on when I'm filming these lessons. There's something about mentally, again, approaching this burning bush and knowing that I'm standing on sacred ground. The fact that you would invite me into your home or into your heart. The fact that any of us would invite the Lord into our heart. To me, scripture study is sacred time. And so taking my shoes off before I start studying scripture, I don't do that every time, but when I do, it's just a gentle reminder to myself that I'm standing on holy ground. So with sleeves rolled up, ready to work, and shoes off, standing on holy ground, and book open, the feast laid out on the table, having already prayed and invited the Holy Spirit to be a part of this study, I'm ready to dive in. Section 27 and 28 today. I love the fact that both of the revelations we'll study this week start in real-life situations for Joseph Smith. He has questions on his mind. And having learned as a young boy that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Here again, the Lord is giving liberally and not upbraiding. He'll do the same for you and me. In section 27, the church is not very old, just a few months. Emma Smith has already been baptized, but she's not yet been confirmed because of all that persecution that they were facing. Joseph and Emma are together with a pair of friends, Newell and Sally Knight, and they realize that the two brethren have already been baptized and confirmed, but the two sisters, both of whom have been baptized, haven't yet been confirmed. And so they're talking about, let's, let's do it right now. Let's confirm our wives, and while we're at it, let's prepare for that by partaking of the sacrament. Now in those days, for the emblems of the sacrament, they would use bread and wine instead of bread and water. 
You can tell that from the sacrament prayers that we studied a couple weeks ago in section 20, as well as in the book of Moroni. It's always wine that's mentioned. And that's so much closer to the symbolism of the blood of Christ that was shed as he trod the winepress alone or trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, as we sing in Battle Hymn of the Republic. That doesn't change to water officially until near the beginning of the 20th century. But you see the first hints in that direction here in section 27. Because as Joseph gets up to go get wine somewhere, he hasn't gone very far when a heavenly messenger appears to him and lets him know there's been a change of plans. That actually teaches us an important principle even before we get into the text of the Revelation itself. I found that often Revelation comes to us when we are on the way to do something. It's as if we provide the momentum and then God provides the direction. And it usually is in that order. He wants us to act. We have agency for a reason, right? And we need to learn how to use it. And as we're moving forward, then the Lord begins to steer us in the right direction. If you think back to the days before power steering, one of my best friends in high school had this big white truck he called the milk wagon, and it did not have power steering. And just watching him try to turn the wheel, I realized then that if you're not moving forward, it's so difficult to crank the wheel and turn because you're stationary. You can hear the rubber tires just scraping along the asphalt. Just move forward. Give God, show that you're serious about this. Move forward, and as you provide the momentum, God will provide the direction. He does for Joseph. And the revelation that we now have is section 27 comes to him, but not in its entirety. And that actually teaches us another really important principle. You see, what he actually receives from the heavenly messenger is verses 1 through 5, about halfway through, and then what we have in verse 14, and a little bit of 15, and then at the tiny tail end of verse 18. And that's it. Joseph really only had one specific question, and that was, actually it wasn't even a question. He didn't know that he needed to have this information. He just went to go get wine for the sacrament. And here the, angel, the heavenly messenger comes and says, what, change of plans. You need to understand something. But what I love about section 27, and like we saw a couple weeks ago with section 20, that as additional light and truth came about additional priesthood offices, they said, well, that fits perfectly with what we already have in section 20. Let's insert it right there. Well, the same thing's happening in section 27. You get this amazing middle section about all these ancient prophets that have a part to play in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then you get this tail end insertion about the armor of God, almost identical to what we have back in Ephesians chapter 6 in the New Testament. And what we're seeing here is a line upon line, precept upon precept, expansion of what was originally a very simple and straightforward revelation. Speaking from personal experience and judging from a lot of examples in the Doctrine and Covenants, I think often with this line upon line, precept upon precept approach, it's almost like the Lord hits insert in the middle of a text saying, there's a lot more to this than you realize. And the more that we think about things and ponder, remember that was Joseph's experience that night that the angel Moroni came. He would receive part of the message and he would meditate and marvel and muse and more would come. Well, where are you going to put that more? Right where it belongs with what you've received in the past. I'm trying to finish my doctoral dissertation. Uh, and I've been immersed in it as much as I possibly can. And it's interesting, the more I study, and the more I ponder, the more insight comes. And sometimes I'll just, I'll be lying in bed and I'll send myself an email just because there's this language, there or something that I know needs to be inserted somewhere. And the insertion is key. Because I can typically remember where in the paper that particular thought would best fit. And that's what's happening here. 
that Joseph Smith is learning more. Additional revelation is coming, and where does it belong? Now, often it's on a completely different subject, and so we have a completely separate revelation. But others, the Lord takes what we have and expands. Remember we talked about unfolding revelation to our view and use that map example that we're, we're accordion folding and seeing line upon line. What else does the Lord want us to understand about this particular topic? Often, I don't think we have any idea just how big our little revelations are meant to be. And in this one, in section 27, it's almost like the Lord is saying, hey, Joseph, speaking of the sacrament, let me talk about the great final sacrament meeting at the second coming. You're just concerned about today's service, finding some wine to be able to partake of the sacrament with your wife and a pair of friends. Well, let me talk about some of my friends. I want you to understand just how massive, what, what an incredible topic you have stumbled across. So forget Harmony, Pennsylvania. Let's talk about Adam on Diana. More than thinking about partaking of wine with your wife and friends, think about partaking of the fruit of the vine with me, the Savior of the world. I've seen those who want to attack the faith use examples like section 27 as some, I don't know, failure of revelation. That, oh, it was redacted, it was edited later, they inserted some things. Well, that's how it ought to be. We shouldn't be surprised by expansion. We should be expecting it. If I could give you one last example before we jump into verse 1. When I was in college, I spent a year transcribing the original manuscripts of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. We'll talk more about the JST when we get to section 35 in a couple of weeks. But it was an interesting project because there we had the scanned images of all those original manuscript pages. The handwriting of Sidney Rigdon or John Whitmer. And it was our job not, not just to find out what was the final product, because the, the RLDS Church, the Community of Christ, has a wonderful uh, copy of that. Our job, rather, was to make a scholarly transcription where we were supposed to write down, where it's more you know, legible and searchable, uh, actual printed text, exactly what was on the manuscript pages to begin with. Insertions and deletions and cross-outs and, and write-overs and all. And one of the things that became most clear to me is as far as the revelatory process was concerned, there seemed to be two extremes. On one extreme, it comes, it flows flawlessly from the very beginning. It's like a Mozart masterpiece, if you've ever seen Amadeus, where with Mozart, it, the composition already took place in the head, and it came out on paper perfectly the first time. You look at a first draft of Mozart, and it's his final draft. Now, some of us think back to our high school and college days, and it's like, that's always how I wrote my papers. Well, not quite like Mozart. For us, our first draft wasn't supposed to be our final draft, and, and our teachers knew about it. That's why there was all those red marks all over it. But no red marks on Mozart, and no marks on some parts of the Joseph Smith translation. The visions of Enoch in Moses 6 and 7 are like that, just a flawless original. It's breathtaking. But there are other places in the manuscripts where you could tell Joseph was just wrestling with the text, and not able to get it right the first time. So he kept trying and trying. You can see on the manuscript places where Sidney or John are writing something out under the dictation of Joseph, and then they stop and they cross it out. And they insert it in the middle, or they cross that out and you know put things in between the lines or down the margin. There's even places that are called pin notes, where, I mean, again, there's no, there's no eraser fluid, there's no backspace here. 
And so they would take a, a strip of paper that they'd rip off of some other blank page and literally pin it to the page that they were working on to give them some extra space to, to keep writing on. And those pin notes to me are the ultimate example of ah, it's just not coming the first time. We think of Elder Maxwell, for example, as one of the most eloquent speakers in the history of the church, and he was. But you read his biography and realize just how many drafts those general conference addresses went through before they became the polished masterpieces, these examples of eloquence that seemed to just naturally roll off the tongue. I remember talking to a professor who was in charge of the project at the time and just asking him, what, what do you make of this? Again, from my youthful perspective, I'd always just assume that, you know, it's like the bat phone, you know, and, and the prophet just picks it up and God dictates and you write it down and it's as easy as pie. That's what I call revelation by dictation. Well, there's also revelation by depiction, where you kind of get a sense or a picture in your mind and then it's up to you to translate, translate it into words. And there's a lot of wrestling that goes with that. And I'm so grateful for the example my professor shared with me. He said, do you remember that time in the New Testament where Jesus healed the blind man? Now, he's, he's healed several blind people in the, in the New Testament. But in one of them, he heals the man in stages. He blesses him and asks him what he sees. And the man says, well, I see men as trees walking. And then Jesus blesses him again. And the second time, he sees everything perfectly. Now, was Jesus having an off day? Of course not. So what's the principle he's trying to teach us? that often, in fact, more often than not in our case, at least in mine, our sight slowly becomes clear. What the Lord is trying to show us gradually comes into view that revelation expands and line upon line, precept upon precept, we begin to understand the things of God. The first round of revelation for Joseph in section 27 was instructive informative. It let him know something about the sacrament. But the second round of revelation was mind-blowing. And as Elder Richard G. Scott taught us so powerfully about his own personal experience of feeling revelation come and pausing what he was doing, turning aside to see if we're back at the burning bush, and writing it all down, showing God how much he treasured this revelation to the point of recording it, and then asking God, did I get this right? If this is revelation by depiction, did, did I get the thousand words that described your picture? And then, most important step, asking God, is there anything additional you'd like to share with me? And then more comes, and he writes it down, and he asks if he got it right, and then he asks another time, is there anything more? And another wave of revelation comes. And he said that third round was some of the deepest and most personal revelation he'd ever received in his life. We, unfortunately, are so thrilled with any hint of inspiration that we think that was the sum total of what the Lord wanted to reveal, when typically it isn't. Believe me, you thought my videos were long? The Lord can go on eternally. Unfortunately, it's just us that typically rings the bell and ends class long before the teacher wanted to. So let's see the original, and then let's rejoice in the expansion. Section 27, verse 1, listen. This is another one of those examples where the, a revelation begins with a call to our ears, like hearken at the beginning of section 1. Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Lord, your God, your Redeemer, whose word is quick and powerful. Here's this two-edged sword that's coming again. 
For behold, verse 2, I say unto you that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament. If it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory, remembering unto the Father my body which was laid down for you, and my blood which was shed for the remission of your sins. Now we're going to see the specific instruction that God gives Joseph in verse 3. But I love the fact that it's preceded, prefaced by verse 2, that gives him a principle that's going to be important here, as well as in other contexts. And it boils down to two phrases. First, it mattereth not. And second, if it so be. This is really the first time of something we'll see multiple times in the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord says, it mattereth not. Some things he really doesn't have a strong opinion on. It's whatever works best for you. That might explain why in some instances we don't get clear direction or definitive revelation on something that we're asking about. There are times where the Lord simply says, it mattereth not. Ye cannot go amiss is another phrase he adds later on. But that other part, if it so be, helps us know, well, it doesn't matter as long as these conditions are met. In other words, there are some things that just don't matter, but there are other things that really do. And it's important for us in, in these kinds of situations to understand the difference. I think sometimes we think of those who may be struggling with their obedience or their diligence and thinking, ah, they just don't understand the things that really matter. But on the opposite extreme, we sometimes get overzealous or a little fanatical about things, not recognizing that there are other things that really don't matter. So whether you're too easygoing or too tightly strung, there's a middle ground here. There's a proving of contraries that needs to take place between understanding what really matters and what really doesn't. Now in this case, the specifics, what doesn't matter? What you eat or drink when you partake of the sacrament. There need to be emblems, but specifically what those emblems are is less important. I remember hearing stories of soldiers in World War II that for their sacrament in a, in a foxhole somewhere, they would sometimes collect rainwater in their helmets and, and use whatever food rations they still had from the military. The emblems themselves are less important. It's what they represent and what they mean to us that matters most. Remember, we don't believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation, at least not of the emblems, but we do believe in a transubstantiation of our souls that we become more like Christ as we covenant to be willing to take upon us his name and always remember him and keep his commandments. Those are things that really matter. When President Benson, or Elder Benson at the time, went to war-torn Europe at the end of World War II to try to just help the struggling saints and realized that the members in Switzerland, for example, under incredibly heavy food rationing, couldn't have bread for the sacrament. They didn't have it. And so what did they use? Potato peelings. And that was totally fine. So please don't get worked up if the deacons are passing the sacrament and you see that it's white bread instead of wheat bread, or vice versa. But don't take the Lord's flexibility too far. I remember teaching this in seminary years ago, and some of the teenagers, once they wrapped their heads around this, they were like, whoa, it doesn't matter what we take? Then why are we, why are we settling for water and bread? Why don't we do soda and cinnamon rolls? Can you picture a bunch of teenagers like taking this to the extreme? Well, it's because of the other part of it. Yes, that part doesn't matter, but these parts really do. So, it mattereth not what you'll eat or drink, if it so be. 
So now he's introducing the parts that really do matter, and there's two of them as far as the sacrament is concerned. First, it has to be done with an eye single to God's glory. Now, does that help explain why we use the simplest imaginable emblems? Does it help explain why we prefer white shirts and ties? You don't disqualify yourself from passing the sacrament or blessing it if you don't have a white shirt on. But again, the simplicity, part of it, 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 it symbolizes purity, right? It's white, it's clean, but also it's really boring for lack of a better word. It's non-distracting and that's the key. Even to the point that we don't even have music playing during the sacrament. Based on our conversation last week about the, the song of the righteous as a prayer unto me, sometimes I think, wouldn't it be nice to have some, some background music as we're pa passing the sacrament and partaking of it? Well, maybe. But then again, would we be thinking more about the music than, than what's actually taking place within? Can you imagine how distracted we would be if every week in sacrament meeting we wondered what was on the menu? The worst would be Fast Sunday when we're looking for the biggest cinnamon roll in the tray. No, don't take advantage of the Lord's flexibility to distract from the things that matter most to anyone blessing or passing or preparing or partaking of the sacrament. Do it with an eye single to God's glory. And may we do our best to eliminate all distractions that would lead our eyes away. And the second part that has to be there, the fixed instead of the flexible, you've got to remember unto the Father. Notice again how he phrases this. He takes the focus completely off himself in the most amazing way. Remembering unto the Father my body, which was laid down for you, and my blood, which was shed for the remission of your sins. Yes, he's present there. It's my body. It's my blood. But the focus is never on him. It's on the Father, and it's on all of us, sons and daughters. The, the glory goes to him. Remember, he did that back in section 19. Glory be to the Father I partook. He credits God with not only the restraint in not removing the bitter cup, but with the strength to, for him to be able to partake of it. Here, remember to the Father, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Yes, we should be thinking of Jesus in the sacrament, but to take it up a level and realize the Father's sacrifice. Remember unto the Father, my body. And then he doesn't even say, which I laid down for you, or my blood, which I shed. No, he uses the passive voice. We'll see this again in section 45, which to me is one of the most breathtaking examples of the grammar of God. But here you see a foretaste of that. My body, which was laid down. You see, passive voice removes the, the pointing of fingers. It's simple, simply something that happened rather than something that someone did. And here, my body was laid down. My blood was shed. He's not even taking the credit for the ultimate example of self-sacrifice. And who was it for? It was for the remission of your sins. I'm, I'm amazed by Jesus's humility here, as if the atonement and crucifixion were something that happened to him instead of something that he accomplished. But it wasn't about him as far as he was concerned. What carried him through that was a focus on the Father.
and a focus on all of us. And that focus needs to be there for us as well. But we can reverse it. We can include that focus on the Father. We can include remembering our own sins and repenting of them. But we can also include a, a focused remembrance of what Jesus did, not just what was done to him in order for us to become clean. That part is not a mattereth not. That is an absolutely essential element of the sacrament. So please keep this principle in mind, and not just for the sacrament. This principle applies in so many other situations as well. My wife does an amazing job of reminding me on occasion. What you're getting frustrated about, honey, it mattereth not. What's the old saying? Don't get caught up in the thick of thin things. Keep them separate and learn to discern between the two. Now with that principle behind us, now let's look at the specific commandment. Verse 3, Wherefore a commandment I give unto you, that you shall not purchase wine nor strong drink of your enemies. Instead, verse 4, you shall partake of none except it is made new among you. Yea, in this my Father's kingdom, which shall be built up on the earth. Now really, verse 3 and 4 could have been the sum total of this revelation. In fact, it didn't even have to be that long. Joseph could have been walking to go get wine and simply had just kind of an uneasy feeling like, you know, there's been all kinds of persecution here in Harmony, just like there was in Fayette and back in Palmyra. It'll follow us everywhere we go. And so I don't know how wise it is to get wine or strong drink or anything else for that matter from people who might be trying to harm us. Maybe there's an element of self-protection in self-sufficiency. So I'm going to avoid the, even the possibility and go back and find some grapes uh, that are growing and, and make my own wine. It'll be grape juice at this point. Yes, the saints used real wine fermented in other, in other ceremonies, uh, but this particular one, if you're going to make it new right now, well, it's not going to have time to, to, to turn from grape juice to wine. Like I said, it could have been as simple as that. But the Lord is trying to teach him something. I love the way the Lord takes advantage of teaching opportunities. I know this is what you asked. Well, this is what I wanted to teach. And to me, it's a, it teaches an amazing lesson on where do we get our materials and our marching orders. Do we get them from our enemies? That's one extreme, the wrong one. Or do we get them from God? Do we find them in our Father's kingdom? In fact, it doesn't even have to be so adversarial. It doesn't have to be our enemies. It can simply be the, the tradition or the status quo or the way it's always been done or the way everybody else does things. And here I think the Lord would say, just be, be mindful. Think about things. Where is the source behind that material or mindset? Is there a different way of doing those things? Is there a better way? Is there a new way? For us to make things new in the Father's kingdom. We saw that two weeks ago with section 20. Here's the constitution of the church. It's not going to be Calvinism. Then again, like we saw last week, it's not going to be universalism either. It's not going to be Catholicism. It's not going to be Protestantism. It's going to be something different. The book of Revelation prophesies that ultimately, in the Father's kingdom, he will make all things new. And to me, there's something worthwhile about examining our sources. And why do we do it this way? Is it because the Lord has, has so declared? 
Or is it just tradition? A very insightful scholar pointed out, for example, that so often our understanding of the apostasy was painted by the Protestant sources that, that we had been reading in the 19th and the 20th centuries. You see, we're not the only church that believes in an apostasy. For Protestants, that's, that's the purpose for the reformation, just like it's the purpose of the restoration for us. And from Martin Luther on down, it was important for them to paint the dark ages as dark as they possibly could, so that there was a, a reason for the reformation. But again, like we talked about with section 10, it, it, doesn't, it didn't go pitch black. The woman was nourished in the wilderness. And part of our problem in, in the stark way, that the almost anti-Catholic way that we sometimes describe the apostasy, is because all of our sources were Protestant. The, the initial generation, the first members of the church, were all Protestants. And it's almost as if section 10 was the Lord's attempt to make things new. I think we largely missed that. Or like decision-making. Is it just meant to be that the person in charge, the, the, there's an executive order and the bishop or the state president or the prophet just says this is how it's supposed to be? That's the, that's the world's way. And what's the Lord's? Ask President Ballard. It is counseling in our councils. When Henry B. Eyring, before he became elder or President Eyring, having just left Harvard and Stanford, where he became an expert in decision-making, and he's watching a decision being made in the church's highest councils. And he said afterwards, man, forget Harvard and Stanford. The, the Lord's way of doing things is different. Are we doing church like everybody else? Are we raising our families like everybody else? Are we coming to our decisions like everybody else? Of course, we should avoid getting our methods or our materials or our marching orders or our mentality from our enemies. But even be careful about simply inheriting it from your friends. Turn to the Lord, seek the Father's kingdom, and make all things new. Verse 5, he says, this is wisdom in me. I love how he says that. Back in 3, it's a commandment. This is how you got to do it. Verse 5, a little bit softer. Well, it's wisdom. I mean, this is what I would do, and I'm, I, I do have a pretty good track record as far as wisdom is concerned. Omniscience and all. So marvel not. For the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. Now this is where it really starts to get deep. Remember the initial instruction was just, don't go buy wine. Make it yourself. He's expanded already. Some things matter, some things don't. Let's get the focus correct when it comes to the sacrament. But now, speaking of sacrament, if you think back to the Last Supper, which was last in many ways, it would be the last time that Jesus would partake of the fruit of the vine with his disciples upon the earth until he returned again to renew that ordinance, or I should say, to renew his participation with us in it. In the Mark version of that, he says, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So this is what he's getting at here. While we're on the subject of sacrament, let me point forward to the, to the sacrament meeting I'm most excited about. And it is a second coming sacrament meeting. Now, the way the original revelation read kind of stopped it short right there. Marvel not, for the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. And then it jumps ahead to verse 14. And also with all those whom my Father hath given me out of the world. 
So he, in, in the original version, he doesn't name any names. He just says, I'm going to be there along with you on the earth and all those that the Father hath given me. Now that's kind of a vague guest list. And so this, in this expansion, this additional insight that came sometime later, I can just picture Joseph just chewing on this and pondering who else is going to be there. Obviously, I want to be numbered among those whom the Father hath given me out of the world. Again, we're not going to do the world's methods or materials or, or mindsets, but who are these members? Who are those out of the world that will come? And as pondering continues, Revelation does too. So let's go back to verse 5 and see this beautiful insertion. And here's a more expanded and much more specific guest list. And it all revolves around the idea of keys. Keep an eye out for that as you look at who is being invited to this second coming sacrament meeting. Their credentials are their keys. Back in verse 5, he will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth and with Moroni, whom I have sent unto you to reveal the Book of Mormon, containing the fullness of my everlasting gospel, to whom I have committed the keys of the record of the stick of Ephraim. So the first one listed in the guest registry, Moroni. Why? Because he held the keys of the Book of Mormon, which contained the fullness of the gospel. This was the beginning of God's work, the sign that the Father's work had begun. Moroni came and inserted the key into the ignition, brought forth the Book of Mormon to begin gathering God's elect from the four quarters of the earth. You see how that key is pointing forward to this day of fulfillment? It's meant to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind as you see the list expand of those who've been invited. Verse 6, also with Elias, to whom I have committed the keys of bringing to pass the restoration of all things, spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began, concerning the last days. Now again, you get a sense of restoration. Moroni is restoring the Book of Mormon so that God can restore his people. But here, the restoration of all things, Everything that the holy prophets spoke from the beginning on down, pointing, remember that they saw what was going on in their day, pushing back apostasy in what would ultimately be a, a short-term losing cause. And so they put their eggs in the restorations basket. The final dispensation was the only one that will not succumb to apostasy. And so they're looking forward to that. They are prophesying of those days. They've been doing it since the world began, and it was talking about us. So the keys of bringing to pass that restoration. Of course, that would be necessary for this final sacrament meeting as well. But Elias, who's that? Now, this is where it gets tricky because Elias is both a, a specific name as well as a title. It's like the King Follett discourse. When I was a kid, I'm all, who was King Follett? No, no, King was not his title. It was his name. Or one of the first anti-Mormons was a guy named Dr. Philastus Hurlbut. And I was like, oh, doctor, this guy should be taken seriously. He's educated. No, doctor was his first name. Back in those days, you want to give your kids a, a, a leg up on the competition. Name him something like king or doctor and hope people don't look too deeply. <laughs> Here, Elias is the Greek way of saying Elijah. Now, he's not using it as the specific name, though. Here, he's using it as the title because he'll mention Elijah by name later on. And so Elias, as a title, simply means a preparer of the way, as well as a restorer. He's looking back and looking forward, preparing for what's to come by bringing back what once was. 
And in this specific case, who was this Elias that would bring the keys of the restoration of all things? Verse 7, we get a hint as he introduces our next guest. In verse 7, also John, the son of Zacharias. We'll come back to John in a second, but notice the clarification. Which Zacharias, he, Elias, that is, visited and gave promise that he should have a son, and his name should be John, and he should be filled with the spirit of Elias. Now there's a lot of Eliases there. Are we confused yet? So what he's describing in verse 7 to clarify verse 6 is that Elias will come to restore all things. That's part of his keys. Just like he came to Zacharias in the New Testament to prophesy of the coming of another Elias, namely his son John, who is the ultimate embodiment of this spirit of Elias because he was the preparer of the way for Jesus Christ himself. So there's kind of a passing of the baton here from one Elias to the next Elias. And who was that? that earlier Elias? Well, according to Luke chapter 1, which is the story of Zacharias having the promise that a son John would come to prepare the way for Christ, that was the angel Gabriel. Now again, that's not the identity of every Elias. We just saw that John the Baptist would be an Elias as well. But the specific Elias described in verse 6, based on the clarification of 7, is Gabriel. That Gabriel will come with the keys, again, keys are your credential, the keys of bringing to pass the restoration of all things. That spirit of Elias, that preparing of the way. And who better to do it than Gabriel? Who prepared Zechariah and Elizabeth for bringing forth this preparer of the way? Gabriel did. Who prepared Mary to recognize that as the handmaiden of the Lord, she would be the mother of the Son of God according to the flesh? That was Gabriel too. In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 1 and see Gabriel introduce himself, Almost everything he says to Zacharias about his son John is in the spirit of Elias itself, as a preparer of the way. Here's a few examples. Luke 1.16 Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. He's trying to get people ready for his coming. Just like here, this second coming sacrament meeting, are we preparing the world for it? Or Luke 1 verse 17 He, John, shall go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That should perk up our ears, right? Malachi 4, what Joseph learned from the angel Moroni. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That should perk up our ears too. That's ironic ordinances. You're turning the disobedient, sinners, to the wisdom of the just, righteous. You're justifying them preparatory ordinances through the Aaronic priesthood. No wonder John is the poster boy for that, and in that spirit of Elias. And then my favorite phrase from Luke 1.17, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was John's role, to prepare a people for the coming of Christ. This is the restoration's role, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I love that description of our role in the restoration today. Are we making people ready? Are we convincing all the foolish virgins around us to get more oil and to prepare themselves? Are we laying out the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb? Are we the ones beating the bushes to bring the poor and, the, and the, those who feel uninvited to let them know that, no, the feast is laid out for you as well? Remember the thesis statement of the Doctrine and Covenants back in section 1. Prepare ye, prepare ye, for the day of the Lord is nigh. 
are we making ready a people prepared for the Lord. We're all Elias's. No wonder it's Elias that has the keys of the restoration of all things. Spoken by every prophet since the world was of the last days. We're all looking forward to that. We're all preparing for that. We're all Johns. We're all Gabriels. We're all Elias's. Those were all things that Gabriel told Zechariah. And then later, nine months later, when Zechariah lets people know that, no, his name really is John, and his voice is, is returned to him, his tongue is loosed. Notice what else he says about this little Elias that Elizabeth had just brought into the world. Luke 1.76, Thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Talk about a beautiful father's blessing. Thou, John, shalt go before the face of the Lord. You'll prepare the way for him. Back up a few verses, Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. I love that he's speaking of the future in the past tense. By seeing this preparer of the way, he who would be the way, the truth, and the life is, is already waiting in the wings. And if he's going to be here, we might as well speak of him as though he had already come. He hath visited. He hath redeemed us. Is the restoration giving people that kind of faith? He's going to come. He's already here. Prepare to receive him. Receive him now. Luke 1 verse 70. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Now you understand a little bit more where this language is coming from in section 27? That's what Elias is all about. One last example from Luke chapter 1. The Messiah that this Elias would be preparing the way for, he would perform the mercy promised to our fathers. And he would remember his holy covenant, the oath which was made to Abraham. You understand then the, the covenant context for all of this? That the Messiah was coming to fulfill God's tender mercies, the promise he'd made to Abraham. And through Abraham, that all the world would be blessed. That's what the restoration is for. We're here to turn hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. We're here to gather out the righteous and to convince the wicked to join them. I love that those were things made known to Zechariah that initially he doubted as too good to be true. I remember once when I was teaching at the MTC and, and these missionaries that were just trying valiantly to master the Spanish language, which was hard for them. I get it. It was hard for me. But often I would see this doubt rise up within them. And at one time it, it hit me as we were finishing class and on our knees in this final closing prayer. And even before we got up, I just remember saying to these missionaries, you need to understand something. You can do this. The Lord wants you to prepare people. And for that, you have to be better prepared yourself. You have to learn the language of those that you'll be communicating with. And then it hit me. And this, this connection to Zechariah came. Because what happened to Zechariah? He lost his ability to communicate. Why? Because he doubted the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord was making to him through this Elias, the angel Gabriel. And it wasn't until he fully accepted and placed all of his trust in these promises that his tongue was loosed and his voice was restored. To those wonderful elders and sisters, I just remember testifying to them Believe, 
Believe in the promises of God. Believe in, in what he's trying to accomplish through you. Trust the angel Gabriel, and you'll be able to speak. It's our doubt that strikes us dumb. And if we are part of this, this Elias writ large, if we're part of this restoration of all things, if we're supposed to be preparing the way for the coming of Jesus Christ, then we have to have the faith to declare it. If we do, our tongues will be loosed as well, and we will be an instrument in the Lord's hands. We will be making ready a people prepared for the Lord. By the way, there's one other beautiful element here, because as Joseph Smith himself would reveal sometime later, who was this angel Gabriel? I mean, here's the first step. Who's this Elias? Oh, well, that's Gabriel. Well, who's Gabriel? And Joseph would later reveal that Gabriel is Noah. That the mortal Noah was the pre-mortal and by now post-mortal Gabriel. In just a few more verses, we'll see a parallel with Michael slash Adam. Same being, okay? But this connection to Noah, I mean, talk about preparing the way for something. Talk about a new beginning. Noah was a second Adam, a father of humanity, a, a, a cleanser of the earth in preparing for a new kingdom, a second attempt at living according to covenant and receiving the salvation of God. This is Noah of the rainbow, the promise that as Zion was caught up to heaven, so it would return, a promise that God would not destroy the earth with flood, that he would come again and this time cleanse it with something different. In fact, it was Lorenzo Snow that recalled a conversation he heard when somebody, perhaps skeptically, came to Joseph Smith and asked, Who are you? And Joseph's response, Noah came before the flood. I have come before the fire. This first Elias presided over the earth's symbolic baptism in water, and now the restoration of the gospel will preside over its second immersion in the cleansing agent of fire. That's what Noah slash Gabriel slash Elias is bringing to this final sacrament meeting, the keys of the restoration of all things. We've got our work cut out for us. So did John, that's where we, who we met in verse 7, and what keys is he bringing? Look at verse 8. Which John, the Baptist, I have sent unto you, my servants Joseph Smith Jr. and Oliver Cowdery, to ordain you unto the first priesthood, which you have received, that you might be called and ordained even as Aaron. And remember when John the Baptist came, this is now section 13, it was all about keys. Again, throughout section 27, the keys are your credential to come into this sacrament meeting. And what did the Aaronic priesthood hold? The keys of the preparatory gospel, the key of repentance, the key of baptism for the remission of sins, the key of the ministering of angels. As we participate in Aaronic ordinances, we are receiving the benefit of those keys. Then verse 9, the list continues. Also Elijah, so this is Elias as a, as a specific name, not just as a title. Elijah, unto whom I have committed the keys of the power of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, that the whole earth may not be smitten with a curse. Just like we saw in section 2, or in Joseph Smith history with the coming of Moroni, just like we saw in that hint in Luke chapter 1. This is a foreshadowing of what we'll see in section 110, as Elijah comes 
to the Kirtland Temple in 1836 and restores these keys to the earth, to Joseph and Oliver, who so far have been the recipient of so many of these keys. In verse 10, also with Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, your fathers, by whom the promises remain, these covenant promises, that in them and in their seed, that's all of us, this is patriarchal blessings, tying in to the tribes of Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's through us that those promises are extended to everyone else. Remember, we're chosen to choose everyone else to be chosen along with us. Exclusivity in pursuit of all-encompassing inclusivity. Then verse 11, also with Michael or Adam, again, the synonymous, one the mortal name, the other the pre-mortal and post-mortal title. Michael or Adam, the father of all, the prince of all, the ancient of days. With that title, the ancient of days, he's tying Michael slash Adam back into a prophecy of Daniel, as well as a prophecy we'll see later on in the Doctrine and Covenants, 107, I believe, that, that ties together Adam on Diamond past and Adam on Diamond future. Adam on Diamond, the land where Adam dwelt post-fall, where early he gathers all of his righteous posterity and blesses them. Again, we'll get into more details there when we get to section 107, when we get to section 116 that talks about Adam on Diamond, but also this last gathering, again with the Ancient of Days and all of his righteous posterity at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ came to that first one. He will come again for this second one. One is anticipation, the other is consummation. To see both of these, where Adam, the father of us all, is there gathering, presenting his posterity to the Lord for the Lord to present us to the Father. Talk about family reunion. And again, keys are involved there. In that same statement where Joseph Smith revealed that Gabriel was Noah, listen to what he said in full. Noah, who is Gabriel, stands next in authority to Adam in the priesthood. He was called of God to this office and was the father of all living in his day just like Adam had been the father of all living in his. And to him was given the dominion. These men, Noah and Adam, or Gabriel and Michael, second and third in, in the chain of command, un, behind only Jehovah himself, these men held keys, first on earth and then in heaven. So amazing parallels between Adam and Noah, between Michael and Gabriel. These two key holders for the human race, fathers of us all. And then verse 12 and 13, the list continues to expand. Also with Peter and James and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles, and as special witnesses of my name, and bear the keys of your ministry, and of the same things which I revealed unto them unto whom I have committed the keys of my kingdom and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times and for the fullness of times, in the which I will gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Now there's a lot there, but did you see how many times keys were mentioned? You see, it was Peter, James, and John that brought the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood that restored that higher authority to Joseph and Oliver. It's with the apostolic keys that those called and ordained by God can be a special witnesses of Christ's name. 
that they are bearing the keys of that ministry to all the world, trying to prepare the world for the coming of Christ. Remember, Aaronic ordinances eliminate the sin so that Melchizedek ordinances can introduce us into the presence of God, grant us the gift of the Holy Ghost, grant us access to the house of God, to be endowed with the power of God, to be brought into the kingdom of God. That's what those keys of God's kingdom are for. They're not keys to, to lock. They're keys to unlock. I mean, look at the way keys are used in the book of Revelation, where the Lord does have a key to lock, but that's to lock the bottomless pit and to keep the, the, the adversary in it. But to open the doors of death and hell so that all of us can emerge from it, free, delivered. The keys of the kingdom are for that. This dispensation, the last time God dispenses truth, upon the earth. This dispensation of the fullness of times where all things are brought together. Do you get a sense of all these prior dispensation heads that are now coming? Uh, Adam, we need you. Noah, we need you. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we need you. Peter, James, and John, we need you too. I, I, I mean, expand it with section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants with, with Kirtland Temple. You'll get Moses that way. There's another dispensation head. I, to me, it's just amazing to see. Section 128, by the way, it expands the list even beyond that as far as heavenly messengers that associated with Joseph Smith. This is the fullness of times. The Lord is gathering together in one all things, making all things new, the old and the new, the past and the present, all preparing the world for the future. It's amazing what's happening here. And it all revolves around those keys that are being restored, that are being turned in our behalf. Now, speaking most specifically of those keys of Melchizedek priesthood, restored by Peter, James, and John, this one's difficult because we don't have the specifics of the restoration of it. We know that the Aaronic priesthood was restored on May 15, 1829. And then we know that a short time later, the Melchizedek priesthood was restored by Peter, James, and John. John the Baptist gave them the heads up that they would be coming. But it's actually taken a whole lot of work and research on the part of historians and scholars to see exactly when would it be. And it had to be before this date, but it would have been after the May 15th. And they just kind of keep working their way in. If it would have been there near Susquehanna as well. And, and when did they go back to Fayette? And so little by little, they, they I think it's around a one or two week period near the end of May 1829, beginning of June, that that's when... Uh, Peter, James, and John must have appeared to them. Now that lack of specificity there, the lack of clarity as far as writing it all down, this is exactly what's happening, has given enemies of the church a field day. Because they'll often approach the, the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood and say, it never happened. It was never written down. It's not, it's not in a text somewhere. And so Joseph must have made it up later. And they'll use things like this later insertion Again, section 27, as, as originally revealed, was a short five or six verses. Well, what's with all this middle stuff? They're just tacking it all in. And ironically, they seem to only bring up the, the coming of Peter, James, and John, as mentioned here. They don't seem to bring up all the other heavenly messengers that are a part of this restoration of all things. But they're trying to suggest that the idea of a Melchizedek restoration was an afterthought that Joseph and Oliver used later to try to shore up their, their street cred and try to suggest that, no, 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 we really do have authority. Now, if you really want to dig into the details here, one of your best sources would be the Joseph Smith Papers Project online. 
that has all kinds of information regarding the restoration of both priesthoods, Aaronic and Melchizedek. And while admittedly, it sure would have been nice if Joseph Smith would have been keeping a journal in those days and written down specifically the exact date and experience of having Peter, James, and John appear. Word was starting to trickle out in other directions. In fact, it was often the enemies of the church that picked up on this first. I mean, 1835, with the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, we see this form of section 27. But as early as late 1830, the Painesville Telegraph, which didn't have many nice things to say about the church. It mentions Oliver Cowdery's claims to have seen angels and to have received authority from heaven. One of my favorite clues comes a few years later when one Protestant minister is writing to another and complaining about the Mormons that are growing all around them. This is 1833. And he says, Joe Smith, the great Mormonosity. <laughs> Don't you love that? It's one thing to be called a Mormon, but to be a Mormonosity? Yeah, well, that was old Joe Smith, right? The great Mormonosity was there and held forth, and among other things, he told them he had seen Jesus Christ and the apostles and conversed with them, and that he could perform miracles. So our skeptics may be right in complaining that the brethren didn't write these things down until later, but evidently they were talking about it. Maybe that's one of the reasons that they, they held off proclaiming it too far abroad, because it was already bringing, driving up animosity from those around them. But Joseph held firm to those claims of having seen not just God and angels, but apostles specifically. In fact, it wasn't just Joseph holding forth and, and maintaining that testimony. It was Oliver Cowdery, including during his days of, of personal apostasy. From 1838 until 1848, he was away from the church. Didn't want to follow Joseph, didn't want to follow the rest of the saints. Again, held firm to his testimony of the Book of Mormon. All three witnesses did that. But a lesser known fact is he also held firm on his testimony of the restoration of priesthood authority. And again, at a time where if he wanted to, to paint Joseph into a corner, now's the time to say, oh, it was a fraud. He and I made the whole thing up. He forced or he threatened or he rewarded me for going along with the story. But now, I'm, now that I'm against him, now's the time to let the world know what a fraud Joseph is. No, he doesn't do any of that. In fact, in a letter to Phineas Young, Brigham Young's brother, in 1846, so still two years away from rejoining the church, he says this, I have cherished a hope, and that one of my fondest, that I might leave such a character as those who might believe in my testimony after I should be called hence, might do so, not only for the sake of the truth, but might not blush for the private character of the man who bore that testimony. See what he's trying to say there? I want people to trust my testimony, not only because it's true, but I've tried to live my life in such a way that my character would be irreproachable as well. And then he continues, I have been sensitive on this subject. I admit, but I ought to be so. You would be, under the circumstances, had you stood in the presence of John with our departed brother Joseph to receive the lesser priesthood, and in the presence of Peter to receive the greater, and look down through time and witness the effects these two must produce. You understand what Oliver just said? I've tried to live my life where my character as well as my testimony would be above reproach, unquestionable, and of course I would. I wasn't feeling like I was under pressure from Joseph. I was feeling pressure from John, from Peter. You go receive priesthood keys from those who held them anciently 
And yeah, there's some pressure that goes along with that. Forget about Joseph Smith on this one. My witnesses, my judges are in heaven. My authority came from them. And based on my experience with both, I bear my testimony of both, both the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, both of which were restored. Perhaps here again, as is so often the case, there may even be wisdom in God for some of this ambiguity. Because by making room for doubt on something as important as priesthood authority, he's also made room for faith. And since faith is required for all that we do with the priesthood, heaven forbid that faith be required to believe in its restoration. I testify of the restoration of the priesthood, of the restoration of those keys to be brought together with every other key. Why bring it up late? I don't know. But why bring it up here? That I think I do know. In the context of all of these other key holders, preparing the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ, this grand millennial sacrament meeting. That's what Aaronic keys were for. That's what Melchizedek keys are for. That's what the keys of, of Adam and of Noah were for. The keys of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The keys of John the Baptist. All of it is, is for this glorious purpose. You start to see it in verse 14, which is where we come back to what Joseph originally received. We've, again, pull, put the, the, the cut right there and pull these two phrases apart and insert all of these key holders that are meant to prepare for what we're seeing in verse 14. Also with all those whom my Father hath given me out of the world. How does the Father give us to the Son? How does he wean us from the world? Through his restored gospel through all of these keys, through all things past and present, preparing for the future, all things gather together in one. Why? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's why priesthood needs to be restored. That's why hearts need to be turned. That's why we need to come into this kingdom so that the Lord can present us, pull us out of the world and present us clean to the Father. That's where we see our names on the guest list. Verse 14 is humbling to consider that we could be included among all those. The scriptures speak of an innumerable host, numberless concourses of angels. The book of Revelation, when it speaks of the 144,000, don't be so myopic or, or so provincial to think that that's all there is on the guest list. If those are tribes of Israel, Take the 12 tribes, multiply it by itself, square it, and that's 12 times 12, 144. Oh, increase it exponentially. Make it by a thousand, so that each one represents a thousand others. This is all symbolic. It's not a, a, not a quota. It's like, sorry, we ran out of seats. There's a, you know, the, the fire marshal came, came to Adam on Diamond and measured the valley and said only 144,000 chairs will fit. No. This is symbolic. The tribes of Israel, the house of Israel, God's covenant chosen people, those who have made covenants with the Father through Christ and through his church. And, and who are they? Twelve by twelve. The holy of holies was a perfect cube. So something squared and cubed just in its perfection. These are people who are being perfected in Christ.
made whole, made square, justified, and sanctified through the blood of Christ. All those whom the Father hath given him out of the world are there to come. Do you remember that glorious vision that David O. McKay had? Where he sees the celestial city and people dressed in white who are granted access, entrance there. And as he wonders in this vision, who are they? He sees in words of gold printed above their heads, these are they who have overcome the world, who have truly been born again. Speaking of Revelation, go back and reread Revelation 2 and 3. And in these letters that John sends to the seven churches, and again, seven is symbolic too, for all of the church, seven total full days of creation, right? In each of those seven letters, he talks about overcoming and he promises them incredible blessings. All of them temple blessings, by the way. He that hath eyes to see, let him see. But what's amazing about this is you have to overcome the world to receive them. Here, those whom the Father hath given me out of the world. The vision of that those letters in gold. These are they who have overcome the world. They've been born again. They've been changed. By what? changed by the kinds of things that these key holders have returned to the earth to grant, to open the door of salvation for the family of God. Not bad for a little piece of instruction saying, oh, don't get wine from your enemies, Joseph. Go make it yourself. No, talk about an expansion, infinitely so, in the context of this second coming sacrament meeting. Go back to how we started. Jesus at the Last Supper Take this bread, take this wine in remembrance of me, but also realize it's not just commemoration, it is anticipation, because I'm not going to partake of the fruit of the vine again with you until I can do it with all of you in my Father's kingdom. Think about that next Sunday as you partake of the sacrament. Yes, think commemoration, what Jesus did, past tense but think anticipation of an upcoming sacrament meeting where you and so many others will be gathered with Christ making all things new. What are your credentials, by the way? If all these ancient worthies came on the basis of their keys, well, that's how we're granted entrance to having received what those keys are meant to open up to us. Perhaps the best single place to study this is in Elder McConkie's Millennial Messiah, where he describes this great day at Adam on Diamond. He says it this way, Before any of Christ's appearances, which taken together comprise the second coming of the Son of God, because there's multiple, coming to the Mount of Olives, coming so that all the world sees him together. This one, coming to Adam on Diamond. Before all of these, there is to be a secret appearance to selected members of his church. And don't think secret is some kind of, oh, conspiracy theory kind of under the table. No, like the temple, more sacred than secret. We want the world to know. We want the world to come. You just have to be prepared for it. You need to be on the guest list. And believe me, the Lord wants it to be an infinite one. Adam McConkie says, He will come in private to his prophet and to the apostles then living. Those who have held keys and powers and authorities in all ages from Adam to the present. That's what we've seen in section 27 will also be present. And further, here's verse 14, all the faithful members of the church, then living, and all the faithful saints of all the ages past, will be present. 
Yeah, we definitely need more than 144,000 chairs. It will be the greatest congregation of faithful saints ever assembled on planet Earth. It will be a sacrament meeting. It will be a day of judgment for the faithful of all the ages, and it will take place in Davies County, Missouri, at a place called Adam on Diamon. Every prophet, apostle, president, bishop, elder, or church officer of whatever degree, all who have held keys, there's our credential, shall stand before him who holds all the keys. They will then be called upon to give an account of their stewardships and to report how and in what manner they have used their priesthood and their keys for the salvation of men within the sphere of their appointments. That's where we all come in as recipients, as beneficiaries of what was done with those keys. Elder McConkie clarifies, because this is starting to sound like a long meeting, we need not suppose that all these things shall happen in one single meeting or at one single hour in time. It is proper to hold numerous meetings at a general conference. In fact, I can't help but think the past several general conferences have let us know that you can gather the saints without having to leave your own home. We've seen closed circuit temple dedications broadcast to chapels and stake centers around the world so that the worthy saints, they're still showing their temple recommend as they enter the stake center or the chapel to be able to participate in what has become an extension of the temple itself. Now, please don't think I'm speculating here. I don't have any insider information. I don't know how this is all going to take place, but I believe that it will. And in God's time and in God's way, this sacrament meeting will take place in such a way where God can gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth. And you better believe I want to be there. Please don't take this to the extreme of fanaticism and overzealousness. Please allow it to pull you out of the extreme of apathy or carelessness. But whenever it happens, I love the way Alma describes it in Alma chapter 13 regarding the first coming. His perspective on that should inform our perspective on the second coming. He said, would to God that it might be in my day. I want to be here for it. But be it sooner or later, in it I shall rejoice. That to me is where we strike the proper balance. Yes, I want to be here. Yes, to, to see the fulfillment of all of that would be incredible. But sooner or later, I know it'll come, and in the meantime, I will rejoice in it now. I will prepare myself for it. I'll try to prepare others. I think you get that sense in verse 15. Wherefore, so because of all that we've just described, lift up your hearts and rejoice, right? Alma's words, in it I shall rejoice. I'm now so far removed back at the, the concern I felt back in verse 3 about not taking of wine for my enemies. Oh, forget that. That's, that's ancient history. We have overcome the world. So lift up your heart. Rejoice. And then he says, and gird up your loins. Now right there is where the original would have stopped. And here is where this expanded version inserts these words about the armor of God. It's almost like, again, if keys are your credential for entry, well, here's the dress code. If you've ever, if you've ever been invited to something fancy and you want to know, well, what am I supposed to wear? Well, Here's the dress code. It is the armor of God. Come with a smile on your face. I mean, you're on the guest list after all. Rejoice. Lift up your heart. Gird up your loins. Be ready to, to, to run on in. 
That's the sense behind girding up your loins. Anciently, when men would wear robes out in the fields, for example, it's hard. I've heard this from sisters. It's hard to run in a dress. Well, if, it's that, if that's the case, then it's hard to work in a robe. And so what would you do to gird up your loins? You basically bend down and then reach for the back of your, the, the back hem of your robe and then pull it forward. Are you picturing this in your head? Pull it forward and then tuck it into your belt. And what ends up happening is you've turned a, a robe into like MC Hammer parachute pants. You're not going to trip up over the hem of your robes anymore. You're going to be able to run forward rushing towards this second coming rendezvous. Gird up your loins and then, here's this addition, take upon you my whole armor, that ye may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all, that ye may be able to stand. I love that he's not content with just having us put on a few pieces of protective equipment. It's put on your whole armor. And in the Greek version for Ephesians chapter 6, that's one word, whole armor. Has be, is, is a one-word term. Even the word can't be separated out. The armor can't be separated out either. You need the entire gear or something will be exposed, and that's the part that the adversary will take advantage of. He looks for chinks in the armor. He looks for missing pieces. And if I can find that exposed part and target it, then I've conquered the enemy. I've overcome them instead of them overcoming the world. Notice how he says it, to be able to withstand the evil day and having done all, yeah, all the armor, having done all with it that you're asked, then just to be able to stand. It's interesting the difference between withstand and stand. That first part of withstanding, standing up against, that's what withstand means. Although the with in stand, and it comes from a different root, I had to, to search into the etymology here, that it means to stand against. But for us, with has become not an against, but an alongside. I love both. I'm with standing, standing against the world because I'm standing with the Savior. It is his whole armor after all, perfected in him, alongside him, able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, you get this sense of enduring to the end. And when all is said and done, what are you doing? You're just standing. I picture this prize fight. And who's left standing at the end? They're bloodied and bruised. Remember, every single stripling warrior was wounded. But they were still standing. Standing with Christ. He's the one helping us stay on our feet. He's the one that's helping us withstand the evil day. I love what Alma says to his son as he's taking the reins of responsibility. He says to him, teach them, your people, to withstand every temptation of the devil with their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's the combination of the standing against by standing alongside. Stand up to the temptations of the devil. Well, how? Through your faith in Jesus Christ. Take, be on, take, let him take you under his wing. And with sufficient faith in him, connection to him, Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. If I can stand with Jesus, then I can withstand the adversary. It's part of the protection that his whole armor provides me. Verse 16, stand therefore. And he lists what constitutes this whole armor. 
having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which I have sent mine angels to commit unto you. That last phrase is missing from the, the version in Ephesians. Because here in context, he's just talked about all these heavenly messengers, all these angels that have committed truths to you. John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John. All these incredible things. Skip ahead to verse 18, and you see a few other parts of protective equipment. Take the helmet of salvation, and then the one piece of offensive weaponry, and the sword of my spirit, which I will pour out upon you, and my word, which I reveal unto you. Now, I'll come back to 17 in a second, and I'll finish 18 after that. But in 16 and the first half of 18, you get to see the equipment all laid out before you. Now, speaking of equipment laid out, I remember the first year I played football, and the, the equipment manager came and gave us our pants and our pads and our helmet and all these kinds of things. And I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I had no idea where all of the, the leg pads went. You see, in football pants, there's all these pockets that go in there. But I didn't understand. It was my first year playing. And I had to kind of pretend I was being a little slow and look around and see my teammates around me in the locker room. Where are they putting that? Like, oh, those are knee pads. Oh, thigh pads. Oh, hip pads. Tailbone pad. That one really confused me. But to, to see where all of these things go. Well, what body parts are being protected by the list in verse 16 and 18? Each one is tailor-made for what it is meant to accomplish. If you think about the your loins being girt about with truth, for example. Loins can represent your procreative power. And later on in section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, how is truth defined? As knowledge of things as they were, as they are, and as they will be. Can you imagine girding about your loins with that understanding? The big picture of where you came from and why you're here and where you're going I think too often we teach chastity as a list of don'ts, and that's all it is. Whereas if we teach it in context of the plan, that understanding is essential, no matter what aspect of chastity you're looking at. I think too often when we speak of LGBT issues, the, the, we don't see it, we don't frame it in, a, in the context of the entire plan of salvation, of who you were and who you are and who you are meant to become. If we view our sexuality just as a this life, or even worse, a this moment kind of a thing, instead of recognizing that our gender is part of our eternal identity and purpose, as the proclamation reveals, to see that identity and that divine potential stretching far beyond the present moment, boy, does it change our perspective on the law of chastity. Loins girt about with all-encompassing truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Remember back in section four when we talked about the all our heart, might, mind, and strength, and the heart? That's what a breastplate protects after all. The heart is the core of who we are. It's our disposition, it's our drive, it's it's our personality, it's our motivation, it's it's everything. That's why heart comes first. Once our heart is fixed on God, then of course we're gonna dedicate to it all our mind, might, and strength. So if our our heart is covered by righteousness. If righteousness defines who we are, that mighty change of heart, then of course we're not going to succumb to the wiles of the adversary. Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I love that sense of preparation. Again, we're all Elias's here. But if we have 
have buckled up, have laced up our shoes and got down in sprinter's position, if we are ready to race across the world to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, it sure is hard to hit a moving target. And so let your feet be shod. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who publish peace. That's what we're looking at there. And then in verse 18, the helmet of salvation, protecting the mind, covering the thoughts. Remember that beautiful priesthood example about holiness to the Lord written in gold and put on a plate across the forehead of the ancient high priest? I mean, we affix it to every temple. Is it affixed on the mind of everyone who enters there? Is salvation on our mind continually? And that sword, the sword of the Spirit and the Word, as Paul describes it, or here, slightly expanded, the sword of the Spirit, which I will pour out upon you, the sword of the Word, which I reveal unto you. See, the Lord is trying to give us His armor. He's trying to equip us. And just like Jesus used the sword of the Spirit and Word to combat the temptations of the adversary, remember three for three, when the adversary tempted Jesus in the wilderness, all three times Jesus responded with a scripture. Of course, I'm not going to change stones to bread, for thus it is written. Of course, I'm not going to leap from the temple, for thus it is written. I'm not going to worship you, for thus it is written. Wow, that sharp two-edged sword. Jesus was handy with it, and we need to be as well. But then that middle one, the, the verse I skipped, verse 17, to me, perhaps the most important part of all. In fact, in the Ephesians version, Paul says, above all, so perhaps this really is the most important one, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now there's something about that imagery that he uses, about fiery darts and quenching them, now, think about a fiery dart. Again, I don't know exactly all the details about what type of armor, what type of warrior Paul or here the Lord had in mind. In fact, one of you in a comment a while ago suggested, what about modern military? Are there lessons we can learn from today's type of soldier and the kind of armor that they are given, including the type, uh, the type of weapon that they're given? This commenter very insightfully talked about, well, we can use guns and not just swords. And with a gun, you can protect yourself from a much greater distance. I, I love that thought, that we can eliminate the, the temptations of the adversary when they're still afar off, instead of having to grapple with them in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Well, whatever it might be, I, I picture a fiery dart. And what would the fire do? You see, if I'm picturing a kind of chain mail or, or a knight in shining armor, wouldn't a fiery dart just glance off it? Or metal, I mean, I don't know if there's a dart fiery enough to get metal to melt or burn. But then I thought about, well, what if, I mean, you're probably wearing some kind of clothing underneath. Otherwise, armor would be really cold, right? But to have some kind of clothing underneath that would be flammable, even if your armor is not. And if there is some kind of chink in the armor, or even some kind of separation between pieces of it, and if a fiery dart can penetrate to that, and ignite your underclothing, then all of a sudden, your armor, you're in your own homemade oven, and you're going to, to, to bake to death. And so what would you first do if your clothing underneath was ignited by a fiery dart? You'd remove your armor. Ah, now you're fully exposed to the onslaught of the adversary. 
See, there is something about the, this, the heat of battle with these fiery darts and the need to be able to quench them. And how do we quench them? Through the shield of faith. Now, I love that it's faith here that's the protection. And I love that it's compared to a shield. Because what can a shield do that a breastplate can't? Or that a helmet can't? It can move. See, the helmet only protects the head. The breastplate only protects the chest. But a shield has the flexibility to protect everything. And that's what faith can do. Let me try to explain it this way. Like I've said before, I do a lot of studying of faith crisis and how people attack faith rhetorically. And the more I've studied, the more I realize that there, are, there seem to be stages of attack for the adversary. And the first one is typically to kind of, again, these fiery darts, to aim them at specific issues in the church, whether it's historically or doctrinally or policy or practice. He gets you to question specific things. For example, when people want to rip apart the Book of Mormon, I always call it death by a million pinpricks or dark pricks, if we want to be more scriptural here. And it's just these tiny little things, details of the Book of Mormon. Explain that. Or help me understand this. Or how could that be true? Or why this? And it's all these tiny little things. But they're informational. They're propositional. Can you explain this proposition of the faith? And often, there are specific answers that you can respond with. And even in the absence of specific answers, faith is always sufficient to be able to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that one, but I've had the witness of the Holy Ghost and I know that it's true. Sorry, your fiery dart doesn't do anything to me because my faith blocked it. Well, do that often enough and it will either frustrate the enemy and make them leave you alone or they'll change their tactic and that's the adversary for you. So what does he do? Instead of attacking specific issues, the informational or the propositional, he goes for the shield of faith itself, since that's what you keep using to combat him. And now he goes to the epistemological. I know, sorry, big word. It simply means how we know what we know. And so rather than, well, explain this, and then we go, ah, maybe I can, maybe I can't, but my faith is sufficient to overcome it. Then he says, then forget your faith. I've got to get you to remove the shield of faith somehow. And how do I get you to lower that? Well, let's call faith itself into question. Let me get you to second guess the, the source of your faith. The, let me break up the foundation of that faith. Let me get you to question, well, how do you know that you know? Remember, that's what he was trying to work on Oliver Cowdery with, and Martin Harris for that matter. Oh, you've had the Spirit speak peace to your mind. Uh, but do you really know? Martin Harris, you've had all these more uh, empirical experiences, but do you still really know? Again, whether it's the empirical, more rational, or whether the spiritual, either way, he's going to get you to question what you think you know. And I see it all the time in people that are really struggling with their faith. They're past the point of having specific questions. And now it's become an epistemological issue. I don't know if I can trust the shield of faith at all. And so then I lay it aside. And boy, does it open them to all the specific attacks that they used to be able to, to withstand as they glanced off their faith. They start assuming that every spiritual experience is just self-induced. They start chalking it all up to mere confirmation bias. They don't just question the elements of the faith. They question faith itself. And nothing quite exposes them to all the other dangers of life 
than when they have laid that aside. I hope that makes sense. Ponder that, chew on it a little bit more, and understand the, the importance of the faith that we have to protect everything else about us. No wonder God isn't settling for an easy empiricism. He doesn't want us to trick ourselves into thinking that the shield of faith is no longer necessary. There will always be other fiery darts coming in from any angle. And if we have ever lulled our sense, ourselves into a sense of, I don't need faith anymore. I just know. I know it's true. I have an, an absolutely bedrock testimony of it. Who needs belief anymore? Who needs faith at all? I have certainty. Well, certainty is good for a lot of things. But faith is a shield that will never become obsolete for us. Please learn to wield it well. Now, three last things to say about the armor, and then we'll finish this section. One was pointed out by President Harold B. Lee. He said, notice how much is protected, but then turn the soldier around and you realize that nothing seems to be covering their back. Now, maybe the, the breastplate of righteousness is, is front and back, but in case it's just kind of strapped on, then what's one principle that President Lee wanted us to learn from that? That there is no retreat. That we face the enemy. We face him with our faith. We withstand all of his temptations with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we sing in Battle Hymn of the Republic, He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. Or as we sing in Let Us All Press On, We will not retreat. Though our numbers may be few, when compared with the opposite host in view, but an unseen power will aid me and you in the glorious cause of truth. That unseen power to withstand is coming from he with whom we stand, Jesus Christ. The second thing to keep in mind is to make sure that the armor fits. We saw back in verse 15 that the Lord calls it my whole armor, but he wants it to become our whole armor too. And so there's going to be some adjustment to, to make sure it fits us, that we can personalize it, take it upon us. Remember the story of David and Goliath? When Saul, too scared to go face Goliath himself, even though he was the tallest Israelite, it would make sense for the tallest Israelite to go against the tallest Philistine, right? But instead, here comes the young, young boy David, small boy David smaller than Saul at least. And when Saul says, you've got to take my armor, and David tries it on and realizes none of this stuff's going to fit, he says to the king, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. Have you proven your helmet of salvation? Is it on your mind or just on somebody else's? Have you proven the breastplate of righteousness? Is it your heart that it's covering or someone else's? Have you proven the shield of faith? Or are you hiding behind someone else's faith or testimony? You see, that was the irony, because here's David who says, nope, I'm not going to use somebody else's uh, armor. I can't. Compare that to Goliath. This is a detail that nobody seems to remember from the story. In all the paintings, it's just David and Goliath. There should have been a third person inserted. In fact, an old seminary student of mine who became an incredible artist we studied the story of David and Goliath so in-depth in class that later in life, in college, when he was asked to paint a page from some book, the one that came to his mind first was that page from, from 1 Samuel 17. He painted David and Goliath, and it's the most breathtaking painting of it I've ever seen. 
I know I'm biased. I love this kid. But he included the third person. There was a shield bearer that went before Goliath. Nobody remembers that. In fact, on this painting, he even very, very faintly wrote the words, who's this guy next to the shield bearer to draw attention to the fact that, that we never remember that he's present. But you see the lesson that his presence teaches us? Goliath made the mistake that David didn't. David did not trust someone else to protect him. But Goliath, I mean, again, he had a helmet. He had so much other of this protective armor. But the one flexible piece, the thing that could be moved anywhere and protect everywhere, somebody else was holding it. And so when that smooth stone went sailing towards him, there was no chance for the, the shield bearer to protect the forehead of Goliath. We have to be wielding our own shield of faith. We have to make the Lord's armor our own. And that leads to the third point I want to make. And this with the help of President Boyd K. Packer, who in a beautiful talk about the shield of faith, described how we make it our own. He said, that shield of faith is not produced in a factory, but at home, in a cottage industry. It is to be made and fitted in the family. No two can be exactly alike. Each must be handcrafted to individual specifications. The plan designed by the Father contemplates that man and woman, husband and wife, working together, fit each child individually with a shield of faith made to buckle on so firmly that it can neither be pulled off nor penetrated by those fiery darts. It takes the steady strength of a father to hammer out the metal of it and the tender hands of a mother to polish it and fit it on. Sometimes one parent is left to do it alone. It is difficult, but it can be done. In the church, we can teach about the materials from which a shield of faith is made. In church, we can learn how to assemble and fit them together. But the actual making of and fitting on of the shield of faith belongs in the family circle. Otherwise, it may loosen and come off in a crisis. And then he repeats what he said at the beginning. This shield of faith is not manufactured on an assembly line. It is only handmade in a cottage industry. I love that depiction from President Packer. To see what my parents did for me and what I'm trying to do for my children, we're all fitting on the armor of God and preparing to stand behind the shield of faith. Now, the way this section ends Two last details. In the middle of verse 18, he says, Be agreed as touching all things whatsoever ye ask of me. The need for unity in an army can never be underestimated. Be on the same page. Coordinate the troop movements. Be agreed. If you are not one, you are not mine. Unity is key. And secondly, be faithful until I come, and ye shall be caught up that where I am, ye shall be also. Amen. So this whole revelation was aiming for. I just want you to be with me and me with you, this grand and glorious final sacrament meeting. Be faithful until I come. Don't retreat. Don't fall back. Hold your course. I love the moment, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, and in the Two Towers, that moment when the Battle of Helm's Deep, and everyone is trying to withstand the evil day, and it seems hopeless, it's becoming hopeless, but they are trying to withstand and stand with one another. And then, as promised, 
Gandalf, the white wizard, comes with his reinforcements. This massive army of horsemen, here comes the cavalry, comes charging down the mountain to engage this army of orcs. Just be faithful until I come, because I come quickly. Trust in that. I love section 27. Just describing what the second coming will be like. There's the superheroes of the kingdom of God all coming and assembling their keys to be able to return to the key holder himself, Jesus Christ, all dressed in his armor. Of all the places I'd ever want to be invited, it's then. And I pray that I don't come underdressed. Now, turn to section 28. And this second half of this week's lesson is so powerful as well. And in some ways, in my mind, you could, it could easily grow out of that last thing we saw in verse 18 about being agreed as touching all things. Because what you see in section 28 is some disagreement, some discord. Because Joseph Smith has been receiving revelation. He's the first elder after all. But part of opening the door to a speaking God is this possibility that other people will receive revelation as well. And what if their inspiration doesn't match your own? Perhaps you've had experience with that yourself. This is actually one of the reasons that throughout Christian history, they've been very concerned about people who claim any kind of inner voice. When Anne Hutchison was, was banished from the Puritan settlement in, in Massachusetts Bay, it was because she was receiving revelation of her own. And for the, the clergy, the, the authorities in the area, that, that was unacceptable that someone else could, could receive any kind of revelation from God. I think I've mentioned this before, but the word enthusiasm was not a good term centuries ago. N within, theos, God. Enthusiasm meant God within you. That's why people were concerned about the Quakers, because nobody believed in an inner light quite like the Quakers did. But it, was, it led to kind of anarchy. It's like anybody can say that they're receiving an inspiration from God. And I even hear that from Latter-day Saint students today. It's like, well, but how do I know? And, and can't, can't revelation lead you in, in perilous directions? Sure, but not revelation from God. It's when we get our, our wires crossed. And Joseph Smith himself said this later in life, that there's nothing more dangerous than thinking you're being inspired by God when you're not, when you're inspired by something else. And that's the context behind section 28. You see, uh, Hiram Page, who is one of the eight witnesses, he is a brother-in-law of Oliver Cowdery, uh, so he's connected to the Whitmer family. So this is, a, this is a leader in the early church. And he has a seer stone of his own. Joseph Smith had used a seer stone in part of the translation of the Book of Mormon. Uh, it's just another way, training wheels, as we talked about, for, for people to tap into the power of God. And Hiram Page has his own seer stone that he is receiving revelation through as well. And he thinks it's revelation from God. Unfortunately, Joseph knows better. And here's why. Remember when we talked about the canon as a box? And you can add to the canon as list as long as it doesn't alter the canon as law. The, the box can get denser, but it just can't change shape. And the promise with, or excuse me, the problem with Hiram Page's quote unquote revelations is that they didn't fit the box. Joseph Smith said they are in total disagreement with the New Testament, as well as with the revelations that we've already received. So past revelation, present revelation, it doesn't fit the canon. We cannot add it to the list because it does not accord with the law. 
Now, this is still a tricky issue here. Revelation is, is a new concept for so many of these early saints. And on the one hand, Joseph wants to, to clarify authority and revelation and, and orthodoxy, but at the same time, he doesn't want to squash everyone in their desire to receive inspiration and revelation of their own. It's this, this pull between institutional revelation and individual revelation. And that's part of the balance that we're trying to strike. We saw that a little bit in section 20, that if we're proving contraries between hierarchy and democracy, in order to avoid the, the opposite extremes of tyranny and anarchy, then we've got to figure out where the balance lies. In some ways, it's combining the iron rod, there's this fixed institutional clear set doctrine, with the liahona, which is more of the individual, and it's pointing me in this direction, and the words are changing, and there's some, some flexibility there. How do we learn to master both instruments? How do we navigate through both institutional and individual revelation? Well, Joseph, he doesn't want to just come down and say, no, this is it, and I'm in charge, I'm the first elder, I'm prophet, seer, uh, translator, apostle, elder. He doesn't want to just pull rank. And so instead he decides, well, let's wait for the conference. So he's already leaning in a democratic direction. We need individual buy-in to institutional truth. So I, he's trying to strike this balance. Well, it's become such an issue Remember, he already had some concerns with Oliver Cowdery before, when Oliver was putting his foot down over section uh, 20, verse 37. He says, how dare you, uh, you say it that way? And Joseph's like, wait a minute, by what authority are you calling into question the language of God? I mean, there's already been some of this between Elder 1 and Elder 2. Well, now you've got Hiram Page, one of the eight witnesses, and Elder 2, Oliver Cowdery, is actually on Hiram's side. Oliver Cowdery is believing these revelations that Hiram Page has received. So Joseph's really in a, in a tough position here. What am I supposed to do? Again, he thinks I'll wait for the conference and, and have everybody weigh in on this. But it's such a pressing issue that together they decide, well, let's ask God about it and seek a revelation from his hand. And that's what comes with section 28. You see, even that is a beautiful proving of the contraries itself. The way Joseph described it, at first he said, I thought it wisdom not to do much more than to converse with the brethren on the subject until the conference should meet. So that's on the democratic direction, avoiding tyranny. But then with so many people concerned about this, we thought it best to inquire of the Lord concerning so important a matter. So now we're leaning towards the institutional direction. There's more of the hierarchy to avoid the anarchy. Interesting, interesting trying to strike this balance. He received section 28, but then even at the, at the conference, he didn't slap it down in front of Hiram Page and Oliver Cowdery's face to say, see, I'm in charge. No, he was trying to avoid that at all costs. So instead, at the conference, he reads this revelation to them. There's the institutional revelation. And then he asks them about it. And they converse and they talk about it. There's the individual. Here's the hierarchical, now the democratic. It's this idea of common consent that we saw back in section 20 and earlier. And how did it work out at the conference? After considerable investigation, Joseph Smith said, Brother Page, as well as the whole church who were present, renounced the said stone and all things connected therewith, much to our mutual satisfaction and happiness. Sound like what we saw at the end of section 27? Agreed as touching all things? There's mutual satisfaction and happiness for you. And it was achieved by proving the contrary, by coming together both the hierarchical and the democratic, institutional and individual, iron rod, liahona, 
it's amazing to see this all come together. Now in verse 1, the revelation is addressed to Oliver. Behold, I say unto thee, Oliver, that it shall be given unto thee that thou shalt be heard by the church in all things whatsoever thou shalt teach them by the Comforter, concerning the revelations and commandments which I have given. Now for somebody who's just been duped by false revelation, the beginning of this section is incredibly warm and welcoming to Oliver. He starts with mercy, not with justice here. Oliver, it's, it's given to you. Remember we saw that earlier, that one of his gifts was that he would be the first preacher of the church? Again, he was more educated than Joseph was. He had a way with words, and so to be able to preach, that's, going, that's still your gift. It's still given unto you. I want the church to hear you. So teach them. Teach them by the Comforter. Make sure it's the Holy Ghost. And teach them about the revelations and commandments which I've given. Now, even there, we start to see the two sides, the iron rod and the liahona. The fixed, the institutional, the iron rod is the revelations and commandments which God has given through his servant, Joseph Smith. Well, where's Oliver Cowdery come in? Teach about that. Teach and explain and expound and exhort. Teach by the Holy Ghost. Use your liahona to direct people toward the iron rod. See how the two fit together? Then in verse 2, but behold... So we got mercy first, but there is some justice here. So have the flexibility and freedom to go teach about these truths. But behold, verily, verily, I say unto thee, no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church, excepting my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr. For he receiveth them, even as Moses. So now we're clarifying the institutional revelation side of things, that there is an order here. And at this time, it is Joseph Smith. As the spokesman for God. He is Moses. You see, at the end of the day, there still does have to be some presiding authority to make the final decision. I, I, again, Elder Beller, President Ballard has taught this beautifully about counseling in our councils. That the kind of the CEO model is uh, the CEO decides this is the direction the company needs to go and then delegates all the responsibility to go make it happen. And unfortunately, in the past, perhaps we've approached ward council that way where the bishop's in charge, he says this is what it's going to do, and in order to uh, accomplish my vision, I want the elders quorum to do this, and the release society to do this, and the Sunday school that, and the young men and young women's program, and the primary, and it's my choice, my call, and your responsibility to make it happen. That is not the way it's supposed to be. Instead, it is this principle of scattered revelation that God reveals truth all over, but uh, there does have to be a final presiding authority to, to assemble the pieces of the puzzle. It's like in the car, there's only one steering wheel, but there's a lot of seats. And so let's decide together, let's counsel collectively of where we want to go. And then we'll have one person behind the wheel actually getting us in that direction. Here, Joseph Smith is the one who will receive commandments and revelation. That's fixed iron rod. That's institutional. All the rest of us, with our liahonas, can be guided to an understanding of those truths, a testimony that they came from God through his servants, and then through the comforter we can explain and encourage others to understand it as well. But the way he ends here, Joseph is Moses, then leads to verse 3, Thou, Oliver, shalt be obedient unto the things which I shall give unto him, even as Aaron, to declare faithfully the commandments and the revelations with power and authority unto the church. So now do we get our roles clear? 
Joseph is Moses. Oliver is Aaron. And there's some powerful parallels there. Because just like Moses felt like I'm slow of speech, I don't have a ready tongue, how can I do this? And the Lord says, fine. I'll send, Aaron is good. He can do this. That's his natural gift. So let me send Aaron to you. You will still be my spokesman, but Aaron will be yours. And in a similar way, Joseph will still speak for God, but Aaron, Oliver, you can speak for Joseph. You can help explain, declare faithfully the commandments and the revelations. That's actually a really important caveat. Well, while you're receiving the revelations and commandments that come only through Joseph, you go teach them by the comforter. You go declare them with power and authority, but make sure you declare it faithfully. That's always the danger. I've always thought about this. If somebody actually needs a translator, they really have put themselves at the mercy of that translator. Is that really what I'm saying? I hope so. The fact that I needed the translator lets me know I can't I can't critique them. I can't judge and, and confirm that they're actually translating me correctly. You really are putting your mouth in their hands. And so it's up to them to be faithful to what it is that you're trying to convey. As a teacher of the gospel myself, I pray that I am doing that, that I am declaring faithfully the commandments and revelations. I pray for God's power and authority. I also pray for his permission. Am I saying the things that thou wouldst have me say? And, and I, I, would, I would hope that no past or present prophet would squirm thinking, that's not what I meant there. I, I do my best, imperfectly I'm sure, but I try to declare faithfully. And that's true of all of us Aaron's out there. None, there's, there is Moses in the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. The rest of us are Aaron's at best. Well, one of the best of Aaron's was Oliver himself. Now, before we move on to verse 4, I want to say something here that, that blew me away years ago. I, I shared this sometime last year with you. But when I was, it started about 2000, I started this, this reading regimen of the scriptures where I just wanted to read all the standard works uh, a little bit every day. Because if I was only in the Old Testament, then I sort of missed Peter, James, and John. If I was only in the New Testament, then I just wondered what Joseph Smith was up to. If I was only in the Doctrine and Covenants, then, oh, poor Mormon, I haven't hung out with him for a while. And so I just wanted to be everywhere. And so I made this giant chart uh, that showed 365 days of scripture study. How much would I need to read in the Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants to be able to get through everything? I didn't include the probate price because that was so short that it was like, well, read a couple of verses a day and you'll keep up. So I did. And for the next, oh, four or five years, that's how I studied my scriptures. It was a ton of reading, but it really did immerse me in the entire standard works. And I started to see some some connections between places in scripture that I don't think I would have noticed if I'd just done a book at a time. And the most obvious example of that for me was the day I read section 28. I went back and I, I haven't done that in a while. I, I like to stop and smell the roses and slow down. And, and when you have that much to read, you, you kind of have to run. Uh, so I haven't done it in a while, but I went back and I looked at that chart and sure enough, it was March 6th. So we're, we're right on schedule. Uh, but on March 6th, I was to read the first half of section 28. That was the Doctrine and Covenants. In the Book of Mormon, I was supposed to read 2 Nephi 17, one of the Isaiah chapters. In the New Testament, I was supposed to read half of Mark chapter 12. And in the Old Testament, I was supposed to read Numbers chapter 12 and 13. And that's what really blew me away. Because here in section 28, it's Joseph, you're Moses, and Oliver, you're Aaron. 
And you've got to learn to, to come together on these things, especially you, Aaron. I'm worried about you fighting Joseph over the language of Scripture. I'm worried about you getting duped by this false revelation and opposing the revelations of Joseph Smith. Well, guess what Numbers chapter 12 is about? It's when Aaron, along with his sister Miriam, oppose Moses as the one spokesman that God has revealed himself to fully. And I was like, wow, talk about parallel stories taking place. In fact, take it up a notch. And in the, in the Mark chapter 12 story that I read for the day, it includes the parable of the wicked husbandman. And what's that one about? A bunch of workers that reject the servant of the Lord of the vineyard. Hmm, we seeing some parallels? I couldn't think of any connection with 2 Nephi 17, but hey, three out of four ain't bad. What amazed me here, though, is here, just from the Doctrine and Covenants, it was this sense of, hey, you're Aaron, and that's an awesome thing. And it is. Don't get me wrong. You're his spokesman. But with the hint of, of Numbers chapter 12, I realized perhaps the Lord had another parallel in mind as well. Aaron, Oliver, you're Aaron, and that's lofty and wonderful and noble, and you're a spokesman. But also, you're only an Aaron here. And do not oppose my Moses. He's not trying to pull rank on you. Numbers 12 is also the place that it says that Moses was the meekest of all men. But Aaron, don't murmur that you're not on the same level as Moses. Oliver, don't murmur at your second elder status. You two have done so many things together as one. Restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood, restoration of the Melchizedek Priesthood. But, but there's only one steering wheel, and you need to understand that. Joseph is doing his meek best to try to balance hierarchy and democracy here. He's trying to fill his first elder position with meekness. Can you please fill your second elder position with meekness as well? In fact, the irony of Numbers chapter 12 is it comes right after Numbers 11. I know, that's how the numbers work. But what's chapter 11 of Numbers about? It's when Joshua, who's kind of the opposite of Aaron, here's Aaron trying to usurp some authority from Moses, and there's Joshua trying to make sure nobody usurps any authority from Moses at all. Joshua was like Moses' right-hand man, as far as defender was concerned. And when Joshua finds a few other people that are prophesying that aren't Moses, he runs back to Moses and says, they can't do that. They're not you. We've got we to gotta squash this. And what's Moses' response? Again, meekest of all men. He says to Joshua, envious thou for my sake? No, you don't have to get jealous on my behalf. I'm not jealous for me. He says, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Yes, there's a difference between the capital P prophet and the lowercase p prophets that all of us should aspire to become. People upon whom the Spirit has come. Remember, that's the, the, the phrase that keeps coming up for Oliver here in section 28. It's through the Comforter. You can teach by the Comforter. We'll see it again in verse 4 in a moment. But I, I love Numbers 11 and 12 to try to help us, again, prove the contraries, strike the balance. In chapter 11, Moses wants all of us to be prophets and receive the Holy Ghost for ourselves. Chapter 12, but also Moses has a, a different calling than the rest of us. He has a responsibility to sit behind the wheel. So Joshua, your position is, is aiming towards tyranny. And, and Aaron, your position would lead towards anarchy. We have to avoid both extremes. And we do that by 
finding the balance in the middle, individual and institutional, Liahona and Iron Rod. This is how we navigate prophetic leadership and common consent in the church today as well. Now, verse 4 and 5 strikes that balance again very well. If thou art led at any time by the Comforter, there's that again, to speak or teach, or at all times by the way of commandment unto the church, thou mayest do it. But, so here's the other half of the balance, but thou shalt not write by way of commandment, but by wisdom. Now this to me is a fascinating balancing act. You, anytime the Spirit leads you, or anytime the church commands you, it's like you're being prompted by the Holy Ghost, get up and say something. Or the church is giving you a position, you need to go give this talk or serve in this calling. So whether it's, again, individual or institutional in that way, go ahead and speak. Go ahead and teach. Do it whenever you're prompted to do so or called to do so. But notice the difference between speaking or teaching in four and writing in five. Or another pair in verse five itself, between wisdom, that's good advice, that's you teaching and explaining through the Spirit, or by commandment, that is set, fixed, this is the revelation institutional meant for us all. So you see the difference? Keep two in mind. Spoken versus written, and wisdom versus commandment. There's, there's been some fascinating research done on the difference between orality and literacy. Kind of the difference between the ear and the eye. And so often with the spoken word, you're in the moment. It's a momentary experience. Whereas with the written word, you can sit and pour over it and, and look at, at punctuation and grammar like we do here. So the difference between the oral and the written parallels the difference between experience and study, or between momentary and permanent. It's the difference between explaining and defining. It's one thing to just try to explain, does this make sense to you? As opposed to, no, this is exactly what it means, a, a, defin, a dictionary definition. It's the difference between advising, well, here is wisdom, and commanding, this is what God requires us to do. Or in some ways, if you think about these stages of canonization that I talked about in a, in a previous week, this is what, where we go from revelation to scripture where revelation is the momentary, the experiential, the, the auditory. I'm hearing this, I'm experiencing it in the moment. I, now that the Spirit can tell me what to do with it, as opposed to the scriptural, script as in written, now it's on the page. It's, it's cemented in stone, so to speak. And I can study it and pour over it and ponder it. It's actually one of the reasons that I so prefer teaching to filming lessons and posting them on YouTube. Because as my students know in class, I'm, I'm, I'm much more comfortable there. It's just because it's in the moment. It's not permanent. It's not set in stone. I'm just giving revelation, not scripture. Or more accurately, I'm just trying to convey words of wisdom. I am speaking and teaching. It's not me to give commandment. And, and that's, well, again, probably almost subconsciously what I worry about having something permanently on YouTube or a podcast is will people rewind and like, oh, did he mean it that? And so often as I'm video editing, it's like, dang it, that's not exactly, I wish I could change that. It's one of the reasons that the brethren, who so often when they're out at a state conference, don't have a prepared message and they're just speaking by the Spirit. They are teaching, they are declaring truth, they are giving words of wisdom. But they often say, this shouldn't be recorded. I'm not establishing doctrine here. 
as opposed to their general conference talks, which they write out in advance. So and go, you know, draft after draft after draft, and Eli Maxwell style to be able to see this is something that will be kind of on permanent record. And there's a difference there. I hope that's making sense from verse four and five. Joseph's role is in the, the scriptural side. Oliver's role is more in the experiential inspiration side of things. We have a receiver of commandments in Moses and a teacher of wisdom in Aaron. In some ways, it all revolves around what he hears in verse 6. As clear as you can get, thou shalt not command him who is at thy head and at the head of the church. Later, Joseph Smith would expound, expound upon this and, and say, it's against the economy of heaven to receive revelation flowing up. It, it flows down. We don't get God's voice for us to, to, to direct people above us. It's, we have a responsibility, a stewardship that requires God's inspiration so that we can help those that we have stewardship for. Now, that doesn't mean that other things can't flow up. Believe me, speaking with my leaders, even when I was in bishoprics and, and as a counselor, I would constantly try to allow my best advice, my wisest wisdom, not that it was ever very wise, but anything I could offer, I would give that, I would allow it to flow uphill, but not by way of commandment. It was never, Bishop, this is what we have to do. It was, well, here's my best advice. If I'm pondering these things and seeking the, the comforter's guidance, here's what, what I suggest. This is, this is my perspective. But you're at a perspective, higher, watchman on the tower, to see things I don't see. Now, I might have a better view of what's happening right here, boots on the ground. So, of course, I want to convey that upstairs. Remember, there is this balance between the democracy and the hierarchy kind of thing. And so here's my view. But now that I know that I've shared my view, I am completely open for you to integrate it with everything else you see that I don't. And if with all of those pieces of the puzzle put together, you decide to go in a direction that's different than the wisdom that I first suggested, then by all means, I trust you on that. It's not my place to command him who is at my head. It's up to me to give the best wisdom, advice, my own experiences, my own perspectives, all of that. But once that's come up, been part of his larger vision, and then when the decision comes down, now it's for me to sustain, which of course I can do wholeheartedly because I helped contribute to the conversation. That's what ward council should look like. It's what family council should look like. It's what's happening on the highest levels of church governance. Verse 7 again clarifies Joseph's role as opposed to Oliver's. I have given him, Joseph, the keys of the mysteries and the revelations which are sealed until I shall appoint unto them another in his stead. It's not a one and done. There are yet other administrations that will follow. Line upon line and precept upon precept, after all, outlasts any single individual. It's actually a beautiful way of making sure no mere mortal uh, deserves all of the credit for anything. The only one that's lived long enough to oversee the entire thing is our eternal God. He then says in verse 8, back to Oliver, now behold, I say unto you, that you shall go unto the Lamanites and preach my gospel unto them. We're seeing a, a shift in purpose here. And inasmuch as they receive thy teachings, thou shalt cause my church to be established among them. And thou shalt have revelations, but write them not by way of commandment. It's amazing that here, Oliver, again, we started with mercy, then we got into justice, and now we're back to mercy. You're still called. 
It's like uh, Joseph Smith with the last 116 pages. Joseph, thou art still called to this work. Martin, you're still involved. I mean, all I've got is imperfect people. So if you think your imperfections disqualify you, well, that would leave me with no one to work with. So learn from your mistakes and pick yourself up and dust yourself off. It's all okay. Even among you church leaders, speaking of Moses and Aaron, I actually love the fact that within the Ark of the Covenant, covered by what was called the mercy seat, the throne of grace, yet everything in it is covered by God's grace and mercy. And we usually only think of the law, the tablets in there. And that was one of them. God's mercy overshadows our broken law. But what was, else was in there? Aaron's staff, the one that budded and blossomed and grew almonds to show that it was the tribe of Levi that was supposed to have priesthood authority, as opposed to anyone else who wanted to usurp that authority themselves. Again, there's an irony there. Aaron was on the giving end of some, some power plays, but also on the receiving end of it as well. And God clarified it by using his rod as, as evidence. Well, that rod was later put into the Ark of the Covenant. And not just for safekeeping or a cool place to store the artifacts of ancient Israel. Again, I think symbolically it was also to show that the grace and mercy of God doesn't just cover, it's the word for atonement again in Hebrew, right? Doesn't just atone for or cover law when it's broken, but it also covers and atones for mistakes made in leadership, imperfect human beings trying to open themselves to the revelations and commandments of God, doing their best to explain and expound and teach by way of wisdom, but in their and our imperfection, not always getting it perfectly right. And that's okay. Aaron's rod has the evidence that God is in it. There's the, the almonds budding from a, from a piece of, of a stick of wood, but it's also underneath the throne of grace covered by the mercy seat. I'm grateful for that. I'm sure Joseph was. I'm sure Martin was. I'm sure Oliver was. As here he is called to go on this Lamanite mission. We've had a lot of people so far that are called to go and uh, thrust in their sickle with their might. But to have a specific mission like this one, especially one with such major ramifications based on Book of Mormon, that we're gathering Israel including its remnant among the Lamanites. And Oliver, you're in charge of this. Second elder, but first preacher. So go lead the way. You'll cause my church to be established among them. You'll receive revelation. Again, don't write it down. It's not commandment, but preach it, teach it. It is wisdom. Then in verse 9, more on this Lamanite mission. Now behold, I say unto you that it is not revealed and no man knoweth where the city Zion shall be built, but it shall be given hereafter. Behold, I say unto you that it shall be on the borders by the Lamanites. So there's some things that you don't know yet, Oliver. In fact, Joseph doesn't know yet either. But here's at least uh, a hint, in the, a, a, a nod in the right direction. Zion will be built somewhere along the borders by the Lamanites. At this time, western Missouri was the edge of the United States. There's the frontier. And west of that is what they called back then Indian Territory. This, this is Native American indigenous population, and that's theirs. And Zion will be right on that border. After all, God loves the border because it allows him to bring in two different sides of things, the Jew and Gentile, 
the Lamanite and Nephite, proving contraries all the way around. And Oliver is going to be a part of that. I mean, he's going to precede Joseph Smith to Missouri. He's going to see it long before Joseph does. And so again, this sense of, Oliver, you have amazing things to accomplish. I'm not demoting you, especially not just because that you, you made a mistake here in, in, a, in a way usurping Joseph's authority. The balance of justice and mercy in section 28 is amazing to me. Then in verse 10, clarifying some details of this mission, thou shalt not leave this place until after the conference. And my servant Joseph shall be appointed to preside over the conference by the voice of it, and what he saith to thee thou shalt tell. So this is the same conference that they've been wait, that Joseph wanted to wait for. It, it, there's still a sense on his part. Let's be patient. There needs to be the democratic buy-in, the common consent to all of this. And especially, I'd love to, I, I don't want you to leave until we've become one again. We need to be on the same page, especially before we separate and go in different divine directions. Me staying here and, and leaving the church at headquarters, and you pushing forward and, and expanding into, into Lamanite territory. Again, in 10, you see the balance. I want this to be democratic. Let's get together at the conference. But there's still this spot for hierarchy. Joseph will be appointed to preside there. Then verse 11, one more thing that Oliver needs to do before he leaves. Again, we need to solve the problems before we go off in new directions. Or another way to say it, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, before you go and give your gift to God at the altar, if there's something between you and your brother, go resolve it. Fix it horizontally before you come to me vertically. And Oliver is going to need to do that with his brother-in-law, Hiram Page. Verse 11, again, thou shalt take thy brother, Hiram Page, between him and thee alone, and tell him that those things which he hath written from that stone are not of me, and that Satan deceiveth him. Now that's probably going to be a hard conversation. But it's important that Oliver be the one to have it. He was the one, after all, that, that was part of the problem. Well, now he can be part of the solution. And to be someone within the organ, the organization, organization is not even the right word, but someone within this group that had been pulled in this direction, to be able to talk to the, the person who started it, that there's, there's something we need to change here. Something wasn't quite right. And I see that now. I'm, I'm trying gently and meekly to help you see it as well. I, I love the way the Lord puts it in those terms at the beginning. Take thy brother and do it between him and thee alone. Now, I don't think he said that just because they were related through marriage. But to treat the person you're going to have to correct, this is, this is almost foreshadowing in section 121 of reproving betimes with sharpness. Joseph had to do that for Oliver. Oliver would need to do that with Hiram Page. Reprove with sharpness, but then show an, a greater outpouring of love so they know that you're not their enemy. Treat the person that you're correcting as a brother. That the whole reason you need to correct them is because you care about them. I'm not trying to bust you for no reason. And the other part, do it between him and thee alone. This is not going to be a public tongue lashing. I sometimes hear people complain that, oh, the LDS church is, is just, it's a, it's a shame culture. It was never intended to be. There is a place for guilt where it's personal and between the individual and God and my, recognizing my own faults, I want to change. Guilt in that way is a good thing. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not your travel agent for a guilt trip, but I am trying to teach truth 
in wisdom so that people can recognize the error of their ways. I'm trying to teach correct principles and let them govern themselves. So between me and thee alone, let's work this out. It's amazing that the church institutionally even does that with people that are attacking it savagely to the point where there is a, a, a disciplinary council, for example, and someone is excommunicated. So often nothing stops the individual from slamming the church on the way out. But the church doesn't even defend itself in those situations because they want to respect the privacy of the individual. And so they don't publicize the, what the, the, the details of a disciplinary council. They try to work with the person in question between him and them alone. Verse 12 continues that counsel that Oliver was to give to Hiram. Behold, these things have not been appointed unto him, neither shall anything be appointed unto any of this church, contrary to the church covenants. So part of that is about stewardship and responsibility, and part of that is about canon and orthodoxy. On the one hand, it's not your place because it's not your position. You don't command those that are your head. It hasn't been appointed unto you. But secondly, it goes against church covenants. It goes against the New Testament. It goes against what we've already received in the Doctrine and Covenants. To me, that's one of the greatest ways of, of discerning what we feel like we've gotten from God, to, to double check, to check our sources, so to speak. Uh, revelation can be difficult. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But growing into that, I, when I taught at the MTC with Spanish, or when I learned Spanish as a missionary myself, I was constantly asking people, did I say that right? And after they stopped laughing, they let me know where I, where I was in error. And Revelation is similar, except that God doesn't laugh at us. Uh, it's just, it's, again, that goes back to Elder Scott's experience. Did I get this right? Am I understanding you correctly? And the, one of the best ways to do that is through Scripture. Since this has already passed the test of time and proven itself, it's this cloud of witnesses. It's canon as law and canon as list, or as uh, we learn in Joseph Smith Matthew. He that treasures up the words of life won't be deceived. An impression I get, a thought comes into my mind, and I'm not sure if it's me or God. Compared to what you see in Scripture, compared to what you see in the words of living prophets, if it's contrary to the church covenants, the commandments of God, then you can rest assured that you misunderstood something somewhere. And that's okay. That's, we, we learn from these mistakes. And God was giving Oliver a chance to learn from his mistake, and he was giving Hiram Page a chance to learn from his. I'm so grateful for that mercy and grace that overshadows all of us. Verse 13, he then adds, For all things must be done in order, that's the hierarchy side, and by common consent in the church, that's the democracy side, by the prayer of faith, that's seeking as, as, as diligently as we can, the blessings of God to help us strike that balance. In fact, that prayer of faith beautifully describes how Joseph Smith approached this. Because when he went to that conference, knowing he was trying, to, this is really one of the first times, it's like this, this whole revelation thing, the, the genie's out of the bottle. And I don't know if there's any way to get it back in. This could lead to inspirational anarchy and, and everybody speaking and turning wheels in different directions. This could be church chaos. So I've got to balance order on the one hand, but I've got to balance common consent on the other. Heavenly Father, how do I strike this balance? How do I walk this line? Well, prayer of faith, 
It's going to not just require our prayers of faith in what the prophets are doing, but the prophets' prayers of faith that we will be open to the revelation to confirm the truth that comes from them. It's amazing. And Newell Knight, remember he was part of the context for section 27? Well, here for section 28, Newell Knight is there at the conference too. And he actually shares a room with Joseph Smith the night before the conference is to begin. And guess what he describes that night looking like? Joseph in prayer. He said, I found Brother Joseph in great distress of mind on account of Hiram Page. That night I occupied the same room that he did, and the greater part of the night was spent in prayer and supplication. I can't think of a better illustration of what the Lord is saying in verse 13, especially among prophets who are doing their absolute best to balance their own humanity with the divinity of their calling, to balance the hierarchical authority that they've been given with the democratic need for common consent. I trust the brethren. For me, their unanimity offsets their fallibility. And with prayers of faith, going from both parties, the Lord will help us to be one. I'm convinced of that. He then concludes, verse 14, Thou shalt assist to settle all these things according to the covenants of the church before thou shalt take thy journey among the Lamanites. So, Oliver, make sure it's all wrapped up and taken care of before you go. Fix the horizontal before you pursue the vertical. Verse 15, it shall be given thee from the time thou shalt go until the time thou shalt return, what thou shalt do. And thou must open thy mouth at all times, declaring my gospel with the sound of rejoicing. Amen. Those last two verses are fascinating, where there's this sense of, I mean, this whole uh, revelation has been about revelation. And it's been, in a way, about Oliver getting his signals crossed. But what's he told at the end of it? It'll be given you what you shall do. Yes, you made a mistake with Revelation, but don't throw in the towel on Revelation. I know this is hard. This is a foreign language. You will become more and more fluent. You just have to practice listening and speaking. So do. Go out and it'll be made known unto you. You're not condemned. Get up and dust yourself off and try again. This language takes practice. There's also an interesting thing hinted at in verse 15 too, though, where he says, It shall be given thee what thou shalt do. I'm going to take the first phrase and the last, and I said, okay, great. I'll know what to do. The Lord will guide me on this mission. But notice the middle phrase. From the time thou shalt go until the time thou shalt return. It's interesting that some spiritual gifts have a start and end date that coincide with a specific calling that we're given. If you think about being set apart as a missionary, and now all of a sudden I can wear the tag, but more than the tag, I can rely on the gifts that God gives his full-time servants. The prayers of the saints offered in missionaries' behalf. I'm included under that umbrella now. Until the day I'm released, and then those prayers are no longer for me. Sometimes I think we ought to pray more often for return missionaries. Uh, or those spiritual gifts. That was uh, equipment that I was needed when I was on the front lines of the battle. And now I'm back in, in troop support. I'm back at base camp. Pick your analogy. But the Lord gave me those, those tools, those gifts, those, those blessings for that time. And as I am released from a calling, I'm sadly released from certain spiritual gifts as well. 
Remember that story that President Irene told when he was the bishop and had been counseling a certain sister and really helping her through his service? And right after he was released, she came back to him and said, Bishop, I, I, what, brother, whatever you are, uh, could you still, I, I, this isn't confession. I don't need a, a judge in Israel. But your advice to me was so helpful. Would you mind giving me more? And elder brother Irene was a little hesitant about it, but realizing, okay, I guess I don't need a, a bishop's keys to, to talk to a friend and give, provide some wise counsel. Instead, as he opened his mouth and waited it for, for it to be filled, as it always had during his service as a bishop, nothing came. And he realized, wow, that wasn't me speaking. That was her bishop speaking. That was a gift given me for that time, for that calling. And no longer having that calling, I no longer have that gift. I'm sorry, sister, but I can't advise you with the wisdom I used to have. I'm no longer your bishop. Trust now where those gifts now reside and go talk to your new bishop about it. And then again, that last verse about opening your mouth, declaring the gospel, do it all the time, do it with rejoicing. Again, to end on a note of rejoicing, even after having been chastised in a way in this section, started with mercy, went to justice, came back to mercy, you're still called. In fact, the difficulty of learning this foreign language, like we've said several times, it requires more practice. The missionaries that are fastest at learning their foreign language are the ones that are least embarrassed by their mistakes. They don't shut down and shut up just because they've misspoken or misunderstood. They get up and they try again. And that's what the Lord is asking Oliver to do. Keep your mouth open at all times. Now, I recognize there's a danger there. If your mouth is always open, you might sometimes stick your foot in it, but that's okay. Learn from it. Uh, try to smooth the, the, out the, the problems that you've made, like Oliver's doing with Hiram Page. But then keep the mouth open, because you'll be amazed not at feet coming into it, but at truth coming out of it. And that is something to rejoice over. Keep speaking in my name. Now may I conclude with an incredible statement from President George Q. Cannon who also recognized the difficulty of learning and mastering this foreign language. He said, I noticed when I was very young in the church, and as one of the earliest leaders of the church, that meant the church itself was very young as well. He said, I noticed that men who were greatly gifted of the Lord and had many manifestations, that men like Oliver Cowdery, men like Hiram Page, were the men who apostatized. With the exception of the prophet Joseph Smith, nearly every one was overthrown. I suppose the reason of it was that they were lifted up in pride and allowed the adversary to take advantage of them. Remember how many times Oliver Cowdery's been warned about pride? I would like well enough to see these gifts and blessings multiplied among us and upon us, that as a people we should have dreams and visions and manifestations of the Spirit. He wanted us to open our mouths at all times, just like the Lord said to Oliver Cowdery. Just like Moses, he wanted all the Lord's people to be prophets and have the Spirit of the Lord upon them. But here's the danger of that, as we've been seeing. But there is one thing that we have all got to be very careful about, President Cannon said, and that is this. I have seen elders in my experience that when they got their own spirit moved very much, they imagined that it was the Spirit of God. And it was difficult in some instances to tell the difference between the suggestions of their own spirit and the voice of the Spirit of God. 
this is a gift of itself to be able to distinguish that which suggests itself to our own hearts and that which comes from God. And we are misled sometimes by our own feeling because of our inability to distinguish between the voice of the Spirit of God and the suggestions of our own spirit. Yeah, no wonder that's a spiritual gift of its own, to discern the source of whatever inspiration we're receiving. Again, part of that is check it against the scriptures. A canon is our measuring stick, right? We can see if it measures up to what God has told other people. Part of that is counseling with our counsels and understanding what are you receiving, what am I receiving? Part of that is allowing time to pass and continuing to seek God's clarification and reconfirmation of things. Again, it's the blind man healed in stages, seen a little now and a little more later. It's balancing the institutional and the individual. It's mastering both the iron rod and the liahona. To borrow one of my favorite phrases from the Doctrine and Covenants, from the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, it's part of growing up in God and receiving a fullness of the Holy Ghost. Think of those phrases. To receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost, which suggests it's a, a dimmer switch, not just an off-on. How much spirit do I have now? How much can I grow into? Can I receive a fullness to become fully fluent in the language of heaven? That's all about growing up in God. And no parent chastises or ridicules a child for misspeaking. They're learning how to speak. I think God is grateful for any attempt we make to attune our ears to divine language and to open our mouth in humble efforts to speak for him. Hearken, listen, open your ear, but speak, teach, open your mouth. God is trying to help all of us grow up in him.